Will you please pray with me? Our great God and Father, you are clothed with majesty. You ride on the heavens. You control the wind and the rain. You created the galaxies. You keep the atoms together. Father, you are much more majestic and unfathomable than we give you credit for. Would you humble us and exalt yourself as we look into your word today? Would you help us to have a greater esteem for you and a lesser esteem for ourselves because we have seen uh, the book of Job this morning? So thank you for your help. We need you. We want this to have a spiritual effect in our lives. And so I ask that you would help us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe you've said this yourself. Certainly you've heard other people say it. If only God would talk to me, then I'd believe in him. If only God would speak, then I would know what I ought to do. So many of us wish we would hear directly from God. And I want to suggest to you this morning, you might want to think about that again. That might not be exactly what you want to have happen. Because this morning, we see that Job gets his wish. Job had wanted to hear from God. And today, he finally does. Now, mind you, he wants to hear from God because he feels like God has uh, wronged him. That God has been unjust and, and he's hurt Job. He feels like God, he's prayed and God has not answered him. And so he wants to hear what's going on. Again, a prayer that many of us would love to hear. Well, let me remind you that so far in the book of Job, in the beginning, we saw all of heaven gasp when Satan challenged God, suggesting that God was not worthy of worship, but rather that he paid Job so that Job would love him. And that began the rounds of testing for Job. For, and he passed the test not once, but twice. Then Job endured the accusations and the miscalculations by three of his friends until they exhausted themselves and him by their inability to squeeze God into a mold and reduce him to a formula. Then last week we met Elihu. Elihu who attempted to mediate between God and Job. And in so doing, repeated a little bit of what the three friends had said. Who He responded to Job's objections and he prepared us for what we will see today when God speaks. 
Now, don't forget where Job is. Job is still childless, riddled with painful boils, exhausted by his friends. But most of all, overwhelmed with what he perceived to be the unfairness, the neglect, and the animosity of God. He'd lost children, wealth, security, and finally his health. His marriage, when he needed it the most, proved to be a disappointment. And because of that, he asked for an audience with God to talk this out. If only you'd listen, if only you'd explain yourself. For instance, in Job 13, verse 22, he says, Then summon me and I will answer, or let me speak and you reply. How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me my offense and my sin. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Or again in chapter 30, verse 19, he says, God cast me into the mire and I've become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. The might of your hand, with the might of your hand, you persecute me. Well, Job longed to hear from God, and today he gets what he asked for. He got something that you and I might only have hoped that we would hear, and that is that God did speak. God did reply. But God didn't exactly do what Job had hoped. Job had expected God to answer him. He had expected God to um, respond to his accusations, but instead... It was God who asked the questions. And when God asked the questions, <laughs> he was serious about it. He asked over 70 questions, in fact. And all of those questions can be distilled down into one singular question. It's a question that you and I have to face and answer when we are frustrated with God. And the question is simply this. Do you really know enough to question God when you don't even know the most obvious things? Do you know enough about the things that you can't see to question God when you really don't even understand the things you can see? It comes down to this. Do you really have enough perspective to correct God in the way that he runs the world? Do you have enough information to tell God he's wrong? I did a little bit of what God did by just piling on the questions there. I apologize. But turn to Job 38. And in Job 38, we're going to ask, we're going to hear God ask, in effect, how much, Job, do you really know? Verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. 
and I will question you, and you will make it known to me. And so out of this storm that had been brewing, God speaks to Job. And he uses two primary uh, subjects for his questioning, two lines of questioning here. And uh, this is, there are two speeches. The first one is, uh, that we'll look at today, the second one next week. But in this first speech, he gives two lines of questions. First, what do you know about the physical world, Job? And then what do you know of the animal world? And in asking questions in these two areas, though he could probe so many other subjects, I think God accomplishes his purpose. And in effect, he says, well, Job, you don't know so much. So let's take a look at God's questions. Chapter 38, beginning in verse 4, he asks seven primary questions to probe Job's ability to give God counsel. He asks Job in seven different spheres in the physical realm, what do you know? Challenging Job to provide information that would somehow enlighten God. So I'm going to try and make a similar inquiry and to make it a little more contemporary by citing some easily accessible facts about our physical world. In verses 4 through 7, God asks, Do you know how the foundation of the world was laid? Verse 4, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out a line upon it? And on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When all the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So, just for reference, where were you when you laid the foundation of the world? The world, or the earth, weighs 6.6 septillion tons. That, my friends, is a lot of zeros. There are more than 50,000 earthquakes throughout the world every year. The world needs a good foundation. And so this foundational makeup of the universe is a matter of extreme wisdom on God's part. Things like electrons and gravity and temperature and the planet tipping on its axis and the nature of water are some of the foundational issues upon which human life is based. And so in the beginning, when God laid the foundation, the stars and the angels were singing together, you know, God, that's a pretty good idea. Then he says, do you know why the sea stops where it does? Verse 8, he says, who shut the door? Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out of the womb? 
when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. Who has said, thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud ways be stayed? Doesn't take much creativity to ask this question, does it? Simply walk the beach with your children. What's the first thing they'll do? They'll wander out and they'll let the waves chase them back. Why do the waves stop? And then, why do the waves keep coming one after another? Why are there tides? Why is there a water cycle? Why are there natural coastlines and harbors? Because God wanted the waves and the tides and the cycles and the harbors. And then in verses 12 through 15, he asks, Do you know how the sun rises every morning? You have commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. So why does the sun come up every morning? It comes up because God wants it to. That's why. You don't have anything to do with it. Yet you plan your life around it and you count on it every single day. And here's a little perspective. The sun is 90 million miles from the earth. And only one two billionth of its energy even reaches us. The sun is 330,330 times larger than the earth. 99% of the solar system's mass is concentrated in the sun. Yet the sun shrinks in diameter by about five feet every hour. And I promise you, there's a lot more about the sun that we haven't talked about. Then he says, do you know how deep the sea is? Do you know how far it extends? Of course, this is probably a time when there hadn't been a lot of ocean exploration or ocean travel. In verse 16, he says, who entered the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have you the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Do you know how deep the deepest part of the ocean is? The deepest part of the ocean is 35,800 feet deep. If somebody was going to scuba dive down there, the, the, the farthest a scuba diver has ever gone is 1,090 feet and four and a half inches deep. about one thirty-fifth of the way. What percentage of the world's water is in the ocean? It contains about 97% of the world's water. Which means that there's 3% of the water in the world that's fresh water that we could drink. But in addition, only about three one-thousandths of a percent of that fresh water is potable and available to humans to drink. The rest of the fresh water is locked up in ice caps 
or is buried too far in the earth crust for us to get it out. Then in verses 19 through 21, uh, God asked Job, what do you know about light and darkness? Where is the way to the dwelling of light? Where is the place of the darkness? That you may take, its, uh, take it to its territory, that you may discern the path to its home. You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Don't you love the sarcasm in the voice of God as he's talking to Job here? Where does the darkness go when you turn on the light? Seriously. There are not many other things that act quite like that. Is life, is light a wave or is it a particle? Well, it bends in a prism like a wave and it exposes film and initiates photosynthesis on a plant leaf like it was a particle. Which is it? Can it be both? And then again, God asks, what do you understand about rain, Job? And he does this in two different sections here. I mean, this, rain is a big deal when you're in the, uh, the, the Middle East. One of the favorite thing, my favorite things that I've ever read was John Piper's meditation on rain. And he's talking about rain and he, and because he was prompted by the book of Job. And he begins to think about where rain comes from or where water comes from. He says, well, we're a long way from the ocean, a long way from lakes. Water must come from, where, from somewhere else. And then this is, this is the way John Piper just talks to himself about this. He says, water must come from somewhere else. Where? Well, the sky. The sky? Water will come out of the clear blue sky? Well, not exactly. Water will have to be carried in the sky from the Mediterranean Sea over several hundred miles and then be poured out from the sky onto the fields. Oh, carried? Well, how much does it weigh? Well, if one inch of rain falls on one square mile of farmland during the night, that would be 27,878,400 cubic feet of water, which is 206,300,160 gallons, which is then 1,650,501,000 1,280 pounds of water that travels hundreds of miles in the sky before it comes down. Well, that's heavy, he says. So how does it get up in the sky and stay there if it's so heavy? Well, it gets up there by evaporation. He said, really? Well, that's a nice word. What does it mean? It means that the water sort of stops being water for a while so it can go up and not down. Oh, I see. Then how does it get down? Well, condensation happens. What's that? Water starts becoming water again by gathering around little dust particles that are um, between uh, one one hundred thousandth of a centimeter and one uh, ten thousandth of a centimeter wide. Oh, that's pretty small. Okay, so this water comes up from the Mediterranean Sea. 
What about the salt? Well, yes, the Mediterranean Sea is salt water. And if the salt water came over, that would kill the crop. So what about the salt? Well, the salt has to be taken out. Oh, so the sky picks up billions of pounds of water from the sea, takes out the salt, then carries it for 300 miles, then dumps it on the farm. Well, it doesn't exactly dump it. If it dumped a billion pounds of water on the farm, clearly the crops would be crushed. So the sky dribbles the billion pounds of water down in little drops. And they have to be big enough to fall for one mile or so without evaporating small enough to keep from crushing the wheat stalks. So what do you know about rain? What have you thought about? About the storm and the, the thunder and the lightning? Then he says, what do you know, Job, about astronomy? Let's get some perspective here. Here's some perspective. If you were to drive a car at 100 kilometers per hour, 24 hours a day, you could reach the sun in about three years. Yet it takes light from our sun over eight minutes to reach the earth. Which means that if the sun blew up right now, I'd almost be able to finish this sermon. Or let's just think about it another way. If you could take a spaceship at the speed of 50,000 kilometers per hour, it would take over 88,000 years to reach a star that is the nearest of all to our sun, Proxima Centauri. Or a car traveling 100 miles an hour would take 29 million years to reach that nearest star. It takes light from that closest star 4.23 years to reach us. So if the sun were a dot above an eye on a page, the closest, dot, the closest star would be a dot about 10 miles away to give you some perspective. Light travels 5,865,696,000,000 miles in a year. That's a light year. If you could fly across our galaxy from one side to the other at light speed, it would take 100,000 years to make the trip. The Milky Way galaxy contains 5 billion stars larger than our sun. Some stars are 600,000 times brighter than our sun. The Hubble Space Telescope has found that there may be 100 to 200 billion galaxies like ours in the universe. And so, without even going to other countless, less obvious lessons, God impresses Job with his lack of understanding 
about the elementary things of the universe. God doesn't talk to Job about chemistry or geology or subatomic particles. He could discuss human anatomy or embryology. He could point out the intricacies of microbiology and plant life, but he doesn't. He just deals with life as Job knows it. And then he moves on to another topic that should be even more obvious to Job, and he questions Job from the animal kingdom. So here's a second round, you might say, of questions, and they come from the animal kingdom. There are eight animal questions. He says in chapter 38, verses 39 and 40, do you know how young lions get their food? Or to paraphrase, who is it to make sure that there's a sick water buffalo lumbering nearby? Or chapter 38, verse 41, do you understand how the birds eat? This time of year, we see robins hopping all over our yard, pulling up worms that we could never find. How does that happen? Not only how does that happen, how do they find so many of them? Sometimes birds will eat as much as 14 feet worth of worms in a day. That's a lot of worm hunting. And then in chapter 39, verses 1 through 4, what do you know, Job, about the reproductive habits of mountain deer, or mountain goats and deer? Oh, well, you might know what it says in Wikipedia, but do you know which ones will deliver early? Which ones will deliver twins? What do you know about how the young goats play and why they play? And he continues. Who set loose the wild donkeys? Verses 5 through 8. Do you have any idea why people can tame a horse but not a zebra? Why is this donkey wild? Because God wanted it wild. Because God set it free and he wants it to be wild. Can you tame a wild ox? I don't know how many of you here are um, bull riders, but probably by riding a bull, you didn't tame it. Then he, then he says, then he says, verse 13 to 18, what's up with the stupid ostrich? An ostrich eye, true story, is bigger than its brain. The ostrich stupidity is legendary. In fact, even in these verses, he says the ostrich will crush its uh, babies. It will leave them neglected. And the ostrich is stupid. Why is an ostrich so stupid? Because God wanted a little stupidity in the universe. Well, or I could ask it this way. If you were God, would you make something like an ostrich? And then, when it came time for you to defend yourself at the wonder of all that you've made, would you place an ostrich in your list of top ten accomplishments? That's what God did here. He goes on then in verse 19 through 25. What makes a horse so strong? 
There's little that's as impressive as standing next to a horse or being close to a racetrack when horses are running. We're then in verses 26 through 30. He asks, how does a bird of prey know how to soar? Did you tell them where to make their nests? How do they scavenge and eat meat that is rotting and not get sick themselves? So God pushes Job. Tell me, what do you know about the animals? There are countless other animal trivia questions that God could have asked that actually are quite amazing. Think about it. Why do turkeys have that little hangy-downy thing? What makes feathers such good insulation, and what are they made of? What about those fish who are blind and colorless and live just fine in underground caves? And why do bats look so scary? What makes the otter and the polar bear show off at the zoo? Why are there jellyfish? Why are there all the colors of fish if it's dark down in the ocean and can't see them anyway? What about those fish that have both eyes on one side of their head? And then why would you make skunks or mosquitoes or snakes or rats? Why do elephants have a gestation period of two years while rabbits have babies every two weeks? I'll tell you, pictures in National Geographic magazine will do wonders for your perspective on the creativity, the wisdom, the humor, and the joy of God in his creation. And so... With that, God ends his first speech by asking God, or by drilling Job with these questions, God finishes there in chapter 40. Look at what he says in chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. The Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am a small account, and what shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. So these questions and more could be rolled into one where God asks Job, do you think you know enough to challenge me really? Or to put it another way, do you think I don't know what I'm doing? And with that, Job becomes speechless. Job answered the friends over and over and over, but he has no reply for God. So what did it take for him to get there? It took a little perspective. It took perspective on how little he knows. 
He became humble when he realized that there are all kinds of things he doesn't understand. And you see, the humility came not from a new perspective on his suffering, but from a new perspective on his God. That's what made the difference. His view of who God is was changing while his circumstances were staying the same. But that's progress. And so Joe vows not to say another word. He says, I will not answer again. I'll cease my inquiry. And I would ask you in a much kinder, gentler way than God asked Job, what will it take for you to be still and humble in the face of suffering? I suspect the answer will be the same as it was for Job. Perspective. Perspective is what it will take for you to entrust your life fully to a sovereign God. See, we tend to shrink God down and think that he must see the world like we see it when he sees a much more complete picture. He knows much more of the backstory. He is far more able to manage the complexities of life and its difficulties than we are. I have to say, this has been a fun message to give. The mysteries of the universe over which God does not need our advice are never ending. See, we think we need answers. That's really how we want to approach suffering and how we want to approach God. And we may ask and we may demand answers. We may even refuse to take no for an answer. We might think that God is wrong in the way He is dishing out our life. But the reality is, we don't really need answers. What we really need is to know the God who has the answers. We need to know that this God who formed the foundation of the world is shaping the days of our lives right now. The wisdom that he applied to the formation of the universe is the same wisdom with which he shapes my character through my affliction. And if that is true, if the God that I struggle with in my suffering is the same God that spoke the universe into being, then I can look at him with eyes of faith, even when I don't understand. Will you join me as we pray? Our great God and Father, again, again we're confronted with how quick we are to demand things of you, really how proud we are 
when it doesn't take very many questions for you to put us in our place and humble us. So God, I pray that we really would be humble. Be humble even when we suffer so that we might come near you because you've told us that you uh, resist the proud but give grace to the humble. Father, we, we want to be those who receive grace. So would you shape, first of all, the heart of the one who suffers? And then, Father, would you change the external circumstances? Father, would you change my heart before you solve my problems? And may I trust you to do that. In the name of Jesus, amen.